Well, thank you, Jonathan and Kelvin and Charles and worship team. That's been a wonderful time together. I was deeply moved by the singing of that second verse to our national anthem. How about you? That really, really is significant for us to be praying at this time in our history. And uh, thank you for giving us the opportunity to do that. Well, I'm glad to be back at Calvary with some very good friends and to share this morning's service with you. Thank you for that privilege. I want to introduce you to a book that shaped my life. It's entitled, The Church of Irresistible Influence. Robert Lewis is the author. And he begins that book by asking us three questions. Question number one, what does the community around your church know about your church? Question number two, what difference has your church made in the community? Question number three, if your church closed down today, what would your community miss next week? Now, those are three pretty good questions. What he's asking us to do, of course, is to assess our influence. To assess the difference that we're making in our neighborhood and community. He suggests that one of the ways that we can do that is to take seriously the first directive that Jesus gave to his followers. It's the first one that's recorded in scripture, at least. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, where Jesus says to his disciples, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's the first directive recorded in the scriptures for the followers of Jesus. What does it mean to let your light shine? When I was a young lad like some of these folks going to vacation Bible school and to Christian camping, we used to sing this little light of mine. Did you ever sing that? This little light of mine, let it shine, let it... What does that mean? What does it mean to let your light shine before men? Well, the second phrase in that verse answers the question. We let our light shine before men when we take every opportunity to do good, and we do good. That's what the verse is saying. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. And seeing our good deeds is a powerful influence that lead men to praise God. The challenge, of course, is uh, how to do that. And the importance of doing that becomes very, very clear when you connect this first directive with the last directive that's recorded in the scriptures left for his followers. The last directive is oftentimes what we call the Great Commission. And in Mark chapter 16, it says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That means to go into all the world and share the message of Jesus. Deliver the good news. Let people know that there is a Savior. Let people know that there is forgiveness. Let people know that there is a way back to God. And that's all been provided through Jesus. And if they will come to him and trust Christ in a, in a personal way as their Savior, they can be reconciled to God. They can be forgiven of their sin. They can become a part of the family of God. They can become an heir of spiritual riches that will be theirs forever and ever. Deliver that message. Pass that message on. The question and the challenge, of course, is how to do that. And the first way is to get a PA system that works. All right, thank you. 
Well, now, where was I? What was my last sentence? <laughs> he doesn't know. Well, that's how to destroy an introduction to a sermon. We've just had a good illustration. But you know where we're at, don't you? I've introduced you to the first word that Jesus left recorded in Scripture for his disciples to follow. And that is to let their light shine before men that they will see their good deeds and praise their Father. The reason why that's so important, the evidence that it's so important, is that it's connected with the last word that Jesus gave to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Deliver the message. Let people hear the good news. Now, how do you get that over? How do you, how do you get that message through? How do you deliver that? We live in a day when there's a lot of resistance to that. Uh, we live at a time when the, there's a certain mindset that uh, has barriers to that. How do, you, how do you get that message delivered? How do you share that with your friends? How do you communicate that in a message like this? Well, what I'm suggesting to you this morning is the first directive prepares the way for the second. When you put the two side by side, you can see it very clearly. The way you prepare the way, the way you gain access, the way you connect so that you can deliver the message to your friends, so that you can share the good news with your neighbors. The way you connect and have open access and communication to deliver that message is by letting your light shine before men, taking every opportunity you have to do good deeds. That's how you connect. That's what opens doors. That provides the context for delivering the message. Now, that's not a foreign concept to us, because that's precisely what Jesus did. In the book of Acts, when the the apostles are, are defending Jesus and giving us summations of his life, One of the ways they describe him was that he he went about doing good and preaching the kingdom of God. The one sets up the second one. You don't go about preaching the kingdom of God and then doing good. It's by going about and doing good that we build this context, we build support, we build relationships, we open doors, we have a context and a connection. The two of them go side by side. We go about doing good, and that gives us the opportunity to deliver the message. That's what makes a church a church of irresistible influence. It's, the, it, it, it's, it's characterized by goodness. And that characterization gives them opportunity to successfully and influentially impact people's lives and families' lives and church lives. So I want to look at this, putting this together this morning with you, and see if we can see if there's some practical lessons to you, for you. What do you say to a church that really wants to be a church of irresistible influence, that really wants to make a difference, that really wants to influence a community? What do you say to that kind of church? Or what do you say to a church that is a church of irresistible influence. They're doing a great job. And I frankly think this is what your church is all about. I'm so impressed with the things that you're doing to reach out into the community, to connect. What do you say to a church that's that's being a church of irresistible influence? Or what do you say to a church that used to be, but no longer is? Or what do you say to a Christian that really wants to be a Christian of irresistible influence, to be effective in 
and, and successful, if you can say, in delivering the message and impacting and making a difference in the lives of other people through their introductions to Jesus. What do you say to that person? Or what do you say to a person who uh, used to be there, but sort of drifted? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that whether you're speaking to a church or speaking to an individual like yourself, you can say the kinds of things that the, the risen, ascended Jesus said through the Apostle John to a church in Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia in New Testament times was one of seven cities in the Roman province of Asia, today the country of Turkey. And these seven cities uh, each received letters, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. One of those cities is the city of Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia was a beautiful and a thriving city. But most of all, it was a missionary city. It was a city that had a name that was very strategic. You know what Philadelphia means. In the language of the New Testament times, Greek, it means a city of brotherly love. Now, this city was founded about 150 years before Jesus. And the founder of it was the king of Pergamos, one of these other seven cities. Now, he founded that city and he named it Philadelphia. Why do you think he named it that? Why do you think he called it a city of brotherly love? What kind of selling was he doing? What kind of image was he projecting? What kind of message was he claiming? This is a city of brotherly love. Well, he named it that because of the mission of that city. We know that the purpose why that city was founded was in order to establish the Greek culture in that part of the world. That was a part that was fairly, fairly uh, untouched by the, by the development of Alexander's Greek culture. And so Pergamos, king, who was very committed to the culture of the Greek world, decided to establish Perga, uh, uh, Philadelphia out in the country here, out in the distance, to establish it, to promote and to establish the Greek culture in that area. Now, isn't that significant? What he, wants the church, what he wants the city to do is to be a representative of Greek culture, the Greek world, the Greek language. He wants to, uh, he wants to introduce that culture to a, a, a pagan heathen area. And uh, the city that he establishes to do just that very thing, he calls Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Now, why would he do that? Well, it's because he knows if he's going to get his message over, if he's going to win, if he's going to influence that community to buy into the Greek culture, then one of the ways he needs to do that is to be a friendly, welcoming community, a people of brotherly love. That's the history of this city, Philadelphia. The mission that was given to that city was to um, influence the community, to transform the community to buying into the Greek world. And it worked. Because by the time this book was written to the church in Philadelphia, everybody was Greek-speaking, and the Greek culture had taken over. Now, the reason why that happened, perhaps among other things, was because of the strategy. And the strategy of the king was, if we're going to go to that area, if we're going to make a difference, we've got to be friendly people. 
We need to reach out to people. We need to connect with people. And when we do connect, we need to welcome people. We want to be a community of brotherly love. That's how we're going to be able to sell the Greek culture, sell the Greek language, sell the Greek way of life. That's how we're going to be able to make a difference. And they did make a difference. They made a difference as a city impacting a pagan kind of community to buy into and uh, to adopt the Greek way of life. Now, in that city, there comes to be a church. There's a church of Philadelphia in the city of Philadelphia. Now, what's the function of that church in Philadelphia? Well, it's precisely the function of the city, only the influence significantly different. Here's a church in Philadelphia, and their responsibility is to be a missionary church. It's to be an outreach church. It's to make a difference in their neighborhood, to make a difference in their community, to impact them with the message of the gospel, to introduce them to Jesus, to invite them to become followers of Jesus, to welcome them into a community of believers who will become worshipers of God and servants of Jesus. That's the mission of the church. And uh, the church at Philadelphia was just that kind of church. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, muta, a, a significant, moving kind of church. Well, now, we're coming to the end of the first century. And John the Apostle is in prison. And the Lord appears to John and says, I have a letter I want to dictate to you to send to the church at Philadelphia. The format of the letter follows the pattern of the other six letters. There's a pattern that develops all through these seven letters. Now, I'm going to take you quickly through the letter to Philadelphia. And so if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. And let's see what he says to this church that has an assignment to make a difference, to influence their neighborhood and their community, to reach out and connect. Let's see what he has to say to them in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 7, which says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. Now, the very first thing in every one of these seven letters is a very simple portrait of Christ. Every portrait is different. Every portrait is customized for the church to which it's written. When you look at the, when you look at the portrait of Christ, you get a little bit of an idea as to what the situation is in this church, what the problem is, what the character of the church is, what the nature of the church is. So watch and see what it says about the portrait of Christ. These are the words of him who is, number one, holy, number two, true, and number three, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now that's the portrait of Christ. It speaks of his holiness, his truthfulness, and his authority. You put those three things together, and that's an incredibly significant and important thing for any church and for any Christian who wants to be effective in their outreach and make a difference in their community. The first one emphasizes that this one of whom they're going to speak, this one of whom they're going to uh, talk, this one is no other than God himself. That's wrapped up in this characteristic of holiness. The word holy speaks of his absolute purity. 
But more than that, it speaks of his other than us-ness. It speaks that he is, he is other than us. He is not one of us. He is other than us. It speaks of the, of the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God come in the flesh. The second word, truthfulness, speaks of his role as Savior. Uh, he said one day, on occasion, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is the truth. He is the true way to God. He contains the truth of God. He is the Savior of the world. And the third characteristic portrays his rulership and authority. He's the one who opens doors that nobody can shut, and he shuts doors that nobody can open. Now put those three things together, ladies and gentlemen, you young people that are going out into ministry this summer. And what I want us all to see this morning is this. If you and I are going to make a difference, if we're going to be an influence, If we're going to be an irresistible influence, it begins by getting things right when it comes to Jesus. The last three, last four years, three of the last four years, Time Magazine at Christmas has raised the question, who is Jesus? That's a question that everybody asks at Christmas time. If you don't get that clear in your mind, then you'll never be fired for the message. You'll never have solid, a solid foundation under your feet. You'll never survive the stresses. You need to be clear on who this Jesus is. That's who the message is all about. But if you don't understand who this Jesus is all about, who he is, you'll never make much of a difference. You'll never be a church of irresistible influence. The one who's at the heart of our message, the one to whom we serve, the one who we present, is no one other than God himself. God come in the flesh, who is the Savior of the world and the only Savior of the world, who sits on the throne of the universe and rules with absolute authority. That's Jesus. That's the Jesus of the Bible. And that's always the Jesus of a church of irresistible influence. And that's always the Jesus of a young person on campus, a Christian, a worker in the industry. That's always the Jesus of people who are making a difference, a person of irresistible influence. Their Jesus is God come in the flesh, who is the Savior of the world, and who sits on the throne of heaven, absolutely, authoritatively ruling in this world with his power. Get your story of Jesus straight, and make that the heart of your message and the soul of your life. That's what we learn from the church at Philadelphia. They're a church of irresistible influence because they had things right when it comes to the person they were worshiping and the person they were presenting. After the portrait of Christ, the second thing that comes in some of these letters is a word of commendation. And notice the word of commendation. It comes in the very next verse where he says, verse 8, I know your deeds. Now, that's a lovely commendation because he goes on in the verse, and this is what he says. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. He says a couple of very interesting things about this church when he commends them. He says, first of all, I know what's going on. 
I know what your church is doing. I know the kind of church you have. I know the kind of program you're running. I know the, uh, the focus. I know the emphasis. I know what your aspirations. I, I, I know what's going on. I know your works. And this is what I know. First of all, I know that you are a church of little strength. Now, I'm not sure what that means. It might mean that you don't have any uh, NHL hockey players in your audience. It may mean that you don't have any Bill Gates in your congregation. Uh, you're a pretty good-sized church, but maybe you don't have any of the power brokers that run the economy and run the politics of, of Canada. You may just be a congregation of pretty ordinary people. That's what the church at Philadelphia was. They weren't power brokers. They weren't the politicians that control things. They were a church of little strength. Maybe it was just a small congregation. We don't really have any idea how big it was. But we do know that their political power wasn't impressive and their fiscal power wasn't impressive. They were a church of little strength. I sort of like that because that makes me comfortable. I said, well, I can, I can be part of that kind of a church. That's where I sort of find myself. Well, what about this kind of church? Well, he says the second thing he knows about them is that their church a little strength, but they've kept his word. Now, that's a pretty neat thing for him to be able to say about a church. I've kept, you've kept my word. But what word is it that they've kept? Well, of course, I don't know for sure. But notice the next line. The next line says, you've not denied my name. So I'm going to conclude this morning. I'm not sure how extensive it was, but I'm going to conclude, conclude, because they had not denied his name, that they had taken the first and the last directives that Jesus left with his followers, and they had taken it seriously and then followed it. They were sharing the gospel. And the reason why they were able to share that gospel effectively was because they let their light shine. They let their light shine so that people could see their good deeds and praise their Father in heaven, acknowledge the goodness of God, the greatness of God. And that provided the context for the delivering the message about Jesus and people were responding to that message and hearing that message. It's a pretty good testimony. It's a wonderful commendation. It's a a significant commendation. By the way, of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, there's only... One other church that gets an unqualified commendation. And the other church is the church at Smyrna, number two in the list. The church at Smyrna was a persecuted church. The church at Philadelphia was an outreach church. Both of the churches are commended, but the most astonishing thing is both of these churches are omitted to the third element in these letters, which is a complaint. The first letter, right after the commendation, there's a complaint. The other letters, right after the commendation, there's a complaint. When you read Smyrna, they're commended, but no complaint. When you read Philadelphia, they're commended, but no complaint. Now, there's a very significant lesson with that. One of the healthiest things can happen to the spiritual life of a Christian or the spiritual life of a church is a little persecution. And another one of the most healthy, healthy things that can happen in a church is to become outreach-focused rather than in-focused. 
I learned a significant lesson from Smyrna and Philadelphia. If you want to be a healthy congregation, if you want to be a healthy church, then a little bit of resistance is going to build a lot of strength. And getting your eyes reached out and moving out and focused out and focusing upon doing the first and the last thing that Jesus asked it to, that can be a very, very healthy thing. Because uh, in Philadelphia, after the wonderful commendation, there's no complaint. But there is a fourth element. And the fourth element is an exhortation. So we're going to skip over those next few verses, which just contain some wonderful promises that are given to them because they're being faithful in uh, delivering the word. And let's look, at the, let's, let's look at the exhortation, and that's in verse 11. He says, um, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Well, I sort of like that line, hold on to what you have. Now, in, if I were paraphrasing that, I would say, don't quit. Hold the course. Keep it up. You're doing a great job. You're making a difference. And I know how you're making a difference. You're building connections through good deed living. And in those connections that you're making, you're keeping my word. You're not denying my name. You're delivering the message. Now keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up. Stay the course. You know, one of the great tragedies in church life today is that many churches start off that way but don't continue. And I've been around long enough to understand some of the reasons why that happens. One of the obvious reasons why it happens is they lose vision for the, they lose sight of the vision for which they were made. This church at Philadelphia had a mission, and they were founded for a mission, and they stayed with it. I've seen lots of churches that used to have a great vision. That's how they got started. That, 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 those were the early days of their ministry. But they lost sight of their vision. And now when they talk about what we're doing, for where we're at, what our plans, there's not much, there's not much outreach out there. That's what, that's, what, that's what he's warning them against. He said, don't lose sight of the vision. I know another reason why it sometimes happens you hold on to your vision, but you get distracted from it. You get taken up with so many other things because there are so many other things to t- be taken up. And so you, you still believe the vision. You still hold on to the vision. It's still part of your vision statement. You have signs up. It's in your bulletin and so on. But we've got a little distracted from doing it. And that's a danger. And so I say to churches that are churches of irresistible influence, hold on to it. Don't, don't get distracted. That's why you're here in Oshawa. That's why you're where you are on that college or university campus. That's why you're exactly in that spot on that place you work. That's why you live in that neighborhood and that community. You're there to make a difference. You're there to be a person of irresistible influence. Don't lose sight of that. Don't get distracted from that. That's God's mission for you. Sometimes we just get distracted. I think another thing that sometimes happens is we get a little in, in, introverted. We, we start to grow as a church, and we get all taken up with our programs in-house and ministering to one another. That's an important part of church life. But don't let it crowd out the vision to be an irresistibly influencing church, to make a difference in the neighborhood and community. 
Don't let that ingrownness, that introspection, don't let that crowd it out. But I'll tell you what I think is the number one reason why churches start to swagger and fail on it is because they become satisfied. They just become satisfied. Why, we've got a wonderful church. Love our church. And we just become satisfied to enjoy it. That's the kind of thing that can erode vision. That's the kind of thing that contaminate passion. So his word to Philadelphia is, I see what's going on there and I'm really impressed. You're not denying my name. You're keeping my word. You're letting your light shine and you're delivering the message, perhaps among other things. But I'm, I'm really excited about what's going on there. But, but I want to I exhort you, don't give up. Don't slack off. Don't start to coast. Hold on. Stay the course. Why? Well, it's very interesting, he says, because if you don't, you'll lose your reward. That's how that verse concludes. Lest you lose your crown. Imagine going through the Christian experience. Imagine pouring out your life into the maintaining of a church and the cultivation of of a church program and coming to the end of the race and missing the crown. Missing the crown that's reserved for people who simply did the mission, who simply kept the word. He says, don't slow down, don't slack off. You, you, miss, you miss the crown, you miss the reward for that. And the thrilling thing about the reward, of course, is that that's our way of acknowledging the worthiness of Jesus when we lay those crowns before him and worship him. It's also suggested back in verse 7 that what happens is that he's the one who not only opens the door for us to make an influence and difference, but he's the one who sometimes shuts doors. Right now, Philadelphia is a wonderful time because they've got an open door for ministry. They've got an open door for making a difference. They've got an open door to reach out and connect. They've got an open door for sharing their faith. They've got an open door. But he says, watch out. You can become a little introverted. You lose that vision. You become a little contented and satisfied. And I'll close that door. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what happened. I was in Philadelphia two years ago. There's no Christian church in the city of Philadelphia in Turkey today. We looked around and we saw some uh, Islamic temples, other forms of worship, but there's no Christian church in Philadelphia today. Somewhere along the line, they lost the vision. I don't know why, But somewhere along the line, they lost the vision. And the one who sits on the throne decided to shut the light, shut shut them down. He closed the door. And that's what happened. So it's a pretty solemn warning when you take it from the Lord. Uh, But it concludes with some wonderful exhortation. And the wonderful exhortation is wrapped up in some promises that are given here as he uh, gives three wonderful promises at the end. Those promises to the overcomer are not reward promises. I won't take time to develop this, but I'll just simply say for you Bible students who love to study these letters, these promises are not reward promises. These promises are guaranteed promises that are intended to be incentive. 
when you understand what these promises imply, that's an incentive to hold on. That's an incentive to go on. That's an incentive to be faithful. That's an incentive to be a person of influence. That's an incentive to want to make a difference in a community. And these promises, as they laid out before us in terms of our future and all that's before us, they, they're intended to be an incentive. So now take a look over the letter. What's it say to us? That's the point. What's it say to where we are here in Oshawa? Where you are in your, in your community? Where you are in your career? Where you are in your life? What's it say to us? Well, the first thing it says to us is that the Lord's part in this whole mission of our lives is that he opens doors. He opens doors. That is, he gives us opportunities to do good and to deliver the message. He gives us those opportunities. That's his role. He'll open up a door, and that door, when we take it, by our good deeds, making a connection, building a contact, developing a relationship, gives us the opportunity to deliver the message. That's what the Lord's doing in your life today. That's what he's doing in your community right here. We live in a land and at a time when the Lord is opening doors. Now, that's not true of many places in the world. There are many places in the world I couldn't stand up on a Sunday morning and say that. The doors are closed. Be interesting for us to explore in some of those cases why those doors are closed. But he closes doors, and Philadelphia is one of them. Uh, but you and I are placed in a, at a time and placed in a location where the Lord has opened doors. Now, I know that you may be in a situation where there are some limitations, and that's fair enough. But what are the limitations? My bet is that the limitation is never on the first directive. It may be on the second one. That is, you may have some little limitation as to whether you can speak about your faith and whether you can communicate your faith in your work situation or in your classroom situation. There may be some limitation there, but there's never a limitation on doing good. And it's amazing when Christians simply let their light shine so that people see their good deeds. It's amazing how that opens doors in quiet, sometimes unimpressive ways for the message to be delivered and for the faith to be shared. But we're living in a wonderful time where we have wonderful freedom, wonderful opportunity. Now, our responsibility is to be faithful. Is to be faithful to the Lord. Is to be faithful to uh, the word of God. And it's to be faithful to the mission that's been entrusted to us. So while those are very broad phrases, let me just highlight the two that our responsibility is to be faithful to. We're responsible to let our light shine before men so that they'll see our good deeds. And that will so soften the resistance, so build connections that they will praise God. That's the church of irresistible influence. Now, our responsibility is to be faithful. That's what we're asked to do, and we're to be faithful with that. 
And he's entrusted to us the message. And the responsibility we have is to be faithful in delivering that message. Now, if you were here three or four weeks ago when I spoke on stewardship, you will understand that I'm clicking back in on that message. A steward is simply somebody who's entrusted with the management of somebody else's affairs. And you and I have been entrusted with opportunities, and we're responsible to be faithful, which simply means using those opportunities as the owner wants them to be used, because that's the mark of a faithful steward. The key to being a faithful steward is to discern what the owner wants done and doing it. So you've got some opportunities in your life. That's part of your stewardship. You have opportunities I don't have. I, we were talking before the service. I would, at one time when I lived in Dallas, I was a chaplain of the Dallas Cowboy football team. No, I had access. I had opportunities that many of you people would never have had. I had significant opportunities to touch people who were very significant in the athletic world. But you have opportunities in your area that I don't have. We all have different opportunities, and they're given to us by the Lord. Now, my responsibility is to be faithful with the opportunities that God entrusts to me. And that's your responsibility. That's being a faithful steward. That's our part of it. And being a faithful steward is when God gives you a relationship, when God gives you a contact, when God gives you an opportunity, then your responsibility is to deliver the message. It's as simple as that. It's a privilege. That's what being a faithful steward is all about. So those opportunities come in the context of simply doing what God has told us to do, and that is to do good deeds. As you do good deeds, that opens doors, builds relationships, gives you contacts so you can deliver the message. Now, that's the responsibility of stewards. We're responsible to uh, use the opportunities that God gives us and to deliver the message that God's entrusted to us. You put it all together, and it's pretty, pretty overwhelming. Well, you look at the fact that we're living in a day when, in many respects, very challenging times. But the perspective of an evangelical Christian who understands stewardship and understands the, the directives that are given here is this. Those days of challenge become enormous days of opportunity. And we have opportunities today to reach out and do good that uh, are not needed and aren't necessary and aren't even appreciated at other times. We have enormous, enormous oper- privileges and opportunity. We just look around at the opportunities that God has given to you to do good, to reach out. I love the story of Dorcas, don't you? Dorcas is a woman in Acts chapter uh, 9 of whom it says that she was full of good deeds and helped the poor. What a nice epitaph. She was full of good deeds and helped the poor. Challenging days are opportunity days. And we've got opportunities to do things today to do good. That will build us relationships, make its contacts, cultivate relationships where we can deliver the message that God has entrusted to us. That's a terrific opportunity. That's a terrific challenge. Ephesians chapter 5 says to redeem the time. Now, the word that's used there for time conveys the idea of opportunity. When God gives you an opportunity, buy it up. That's the idea. 
When God gives you an opportunity, don't skip over it. Don't neglect it. When you have an opportunity to do good, take advantage of that opportunity. That'll open up a relationship. It'll build a contact. It'll be an influential thing in providing opportunities for delivering that message. And it happens all the time. Doing good. Well, I sat down once with a a pen and paper with my yellow pad, and I started writing down the kinds of things that ordinary people like you and I could do to do doing good in our our community. Uh, You're going to have a soccer camp. That's a great thing to do. When I was pastoring in London, we had football camp and basketball camp. Never had a soccer camp. But it's a way to, great way to reach out to the community and to make a difference. It got kids off the street. We had a gymnasium in our church. And we opened up our gym after school. So it was drop-in. So the kids could come and play basketball and play floor hockey. So that uh, they weren't hanging around in the streets and getting into trouble. It was just an opportunity to do good. And uh, that kind of thing builds relationships. So people in the community say, oh, that church, yeah, I'll I'll tell you what I know about that church. Boy, if they weren't here, we'd really miss them. Uh, You can have a welcome wagon to welcome people who move into the community. You can have an educational assistance program to help parents who are struggling with special needs children, uh, who are struggling with academic pursuits. You can serve on the Board of Education. You can serve in the Chamber of Commerce. You can volunteer in the hospital. You can volunteer in a library. It's all kinds of good deeds that you can do. That's how you connect with a community. That's how you build relationships with the community. You're, you're, You're just reaching out and doing good. And it can make an enormous difference. It opens up doors, gives opportunity for the delivering of the message, which is the ultimate difference that can be made. And I've seen some wonderful things happen in this area. And I'm just, I just wanted to, 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 to cause you to salivate just a little bit and say, I could do some of that. I could, I could do a lot of that. And as a congregation, boy, we're doing some of that, but maybe there's some more we can do. And what we've planned to do this summer, this is really, really significant, really strategic. You know how people are coming to faith today? There was a major research study done on this uh, about two years ago. Because uh, things are different today. But I'll tell you, this research hit it right on the head and said the evidence is that people who are coming to faith today are coming to faith not through big crusade services. They're coming to faith primarily through a relationship with an individual Christian who's living a lifestyle that has impacted and affected them so that ultimately they came to faith to Christ. Now, that's really significant. It's called the significance of the insignificant. Just you're living your Christian life, characterized by good deeds. That's the, that's the trigger. That's the, that's the open door. That's the opportunity that leads ultimately to making a, an eternal difference in people's lives. And that's what I want to encourage you to do. That's what I want to challenge you to do this morning to recommit yourself or to commit yourself to let your light shine good deeds so that ultimately people will glorify your Father in heaven because the message gets through 
and the faith relationship is established. It can make all the difference in the world and what an enormous impact it can make. And I hope that that will be more and more true of your church. Over in the, the town of Waterdown, just north of Burlington, there's a relatively small church, just a couple of years in existence, really. Last year, they heard that their community was going to have to cancel the uh, Terry Fox run because they couldn't get enough volunteers to conduct the run. So the church talked about it. And as they talked about it, they decided that they ought to help. So they got a group of volunteers together, and they went to the people who were convening the Terry Fox run. Said, we hear you're having difficulty. We'll take it over. We've got, I think it was 46 or some volunteers who will, who will manage it. And the conveners, of course, were quite impressed and quite enthused, but they said, but you don't, you don't understand. The race is at 10 o'clock Sunday morning, just at the time of your Sunday morning church service. Oh, they knew. They said, we understood that. We've decided to cancel church that Sunday morning. Hmm. Hmm. Would you do that? You know what happened? They accepted the invitation and came back to them and said, we've changed the race to one o'clock in the afternoon. That's a church of irresistible influence. That's what Jesus calls us to be. To be so committed to the mission that our life is characterized by good deeds so that people ultimately will praise God and glorify God when the message can be delivered. This is a day of opportunity. And I'm encouraging you to take advantage of every opportunity you have to do good because that's how relationships are cultivated and doors are opened so that you can introduce people to Jesus. This may be the day of opportunity for you. You've never trusted Christ. You've never opened your life to Jesus. You've come to church. You've heard the message. But you've never made the decision to turn from your selfishness and your sinfulness and your indifference and to turn to Jesus, to ask him for forgiveness, to invite him into your life, and to trust him to become your savior. This morning, friend, this is your opportunity to do that. We're going to have a closing prayer in just a moment. And during that closing prayer, that will be an opportunity for you, very simply, but simply sincerely, to open your heart and life to invite Jesus into your life. Trust him for forgiveness. Receive him as your savior. Commit yourself to become a follower of Jesus. Would you like to do that? You've known some people from the church. You've been influenced by by their godliness, by their care, by their kindness. This is your opportunity to to respond to that and to become part of the family. And to walk the rest of the days of your life as a follower of Jesus. Would you like to do that this morning? Let's bow and pray. Father, I want to pray this morning for folks in the congregation who uh, perhaps have never made that choice, never made that decision. And pray that at this quiet moment, you would just so work in their heart because they've been impressed by parents or by neighbors or by colleagues, 
They've been impressed with the kind of life, the quality of life, the care, the love, the unselfishness. They've seen it, and they know there's a difference, and they want to be part of that. And I pray this morning that you would give them the wisdom and the grace to open their heart and life to Jesus, to receive him into their life, to become a follower of Christ. And for the rest of us, Lord, who have done that, give us the wisdom and grace this week to take up every opportunity you give to us to do good. And we pray that that will open up opportunities for us to share our faith. Make this a great week in many of our lives personally. And I want to pray, Lord, that you'll make this a great summer in the life of this church. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.